one of the, the big picture reasons why we've, we're seeing these retreats into populism, retreats into identity politics and nationalism, is precisely because the sort of yeasty diversity and variety of civil society is eroding. Hi, you're listening to the Keeping It Civil podcast, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. I'm your host, Duncan Mensch. In this podcast, I'm going to be interviewing speakers that our school brings to campus. The point of our speaker series and the podcast is to host a civil exchange of divergent views on important political, civic, and social issues in American life. The series invites both liberal, progressive, and conservative voices, which we feel are important for the advancement of civic and liberal education today. In this, our first episode, I interview Jonah Goldberg, a senior editor at the National Review, a weekly columnist at the LA Times, and a New York Times best-selling author. Most recently, of Suicide of the West, how the rebirth of populism, nationalism, and identity politics is destroying democracy. This interview was originally recorded in mid-September during his visit to ASU, and we're going to break it up into two different podcasts. In the first part, we will discuss how American students and even American culture more generally has really lost sight of the uniqueness or the specialness of the American liberal tradition. And we're going to also discuss how the conflict school of American history has kind of taken over most of academia and how, in his view, this happened. Now, in the second part, we will discuss his views on the rise of populism and the deterioration of civil society. Uh, I really am very pleased with how this interview went. I think you'll really enjoy it. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Okay, so let's just kind of do a little basics here. Where'd you go to undergraduate? I uh, I went to a school that a lot of people haven't heard of called Goucher College. It was historically not quite the sister school of Johns Hopkins, but kind of kind of mm-hmm. was. And it was an all-women's college. And my freshman year was the first year they admitted men. Mm-hmm. So I'm not quite the Rosa Parks of gender integration, <laughs> but I had a uh, interesting college experience. Okay. And I went there just to foreclose any further inquiry on this. Um, I went there because I was rejected from every other college I applied to. <laughs> and I was an affirmative action baby. I got in there because I needed good SAT scores and men, and those were two of the minimal requirements that I could meet. Ah, I see. But it ended up working out for you. But so did you, along the way, do grad school? Did you, did you go down that wonderful road? I did not. I did take an LSAT prep course, and I did worse on my final practice test than I did on my initial practice test. (laughs) And I decided I didn't want to go to grad. I thought about going to grad school for a long time, but I kind of, my first job after I spent a little time in Czechoslovakia back when I was still Czechoslovakia teaching English. And my first job after that, I landed at the American Enterprise Institute where I'm back now as a uh, fellow. And I kind of used that as my graduate school experience where I felt like I had an enormous amount of catching up to do because I had been Mm. such a screw-up in high school, and I'd been turned on to all sorts of forbidden ideas in college, mostly like the Straussian stuff. Uh, And so I spent a big chunk of the 1990s throwing myself into conservative intellectual history and intellectual history generally. Even then, even in the 90s, you would call this forbidden ideas? Well, I mean, when I say forbidden ideas is that, you know, I had a um, philosophy professor, a guy named John Rose, who's a great philosophy professor, but definitely a left-winger. And I had the, I mean, this is really obscure stuff for most listeners, but I had the uh, Strauss and Cropsey History of Political Thought, big purple book that 
was just a collection of essays about different philosophers. I thought it was just fascinating and interesting, and I read it in college, and um, or big chunks of it. I'm not sure I read the chapter on Xenophon, but on a paper on Nietzsche, I quoted something in it. I think it was Werner Danhauser was the author for it, and my professor circled the footnote to the Strauss book and wrote in huge block letters in the margins, Strauss sucks. <laughs> and that for Very me— Very professional. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we were at a good relationship, so yeah. it was not like I have a two— It didn't surprise me that much. But for me, it was sort of like that scene in The Simpsons where uh, Chief Wiggum tells Ralph and Bart, what is your strange fascination with the forbidden closet of mystery? You <laughs> right, <know? laughs> right. and And so AEI, particularly in the 90s, was at the tail end of having this hotbed of— very famous Straussians. Uh, mm-hmm. was Walter Burns and Robert Goldwyn. Uh, Irving Kristol wasn't a Straussian, but he was sort of a fellow's traveler. Uh, same thing with Robert Bork. And I kind of found that stuff fascinating. And I share with, I think there are a lot of people on the right, a lot of my friends on the right who are really into intellectual history. We kind of share this sort of fascination with origin stories. We just sort of like connecting dots mm-hmm. backwards and all that kind of stuff. And even though I've changed my mind on the, the utility of that as a form of sort of political analysis, which we can get to if you want, mm-hmm. I still find it fascinating. Well, but I see, I mean, it's interesting that you say that because I see a lot of that in your book. I uh-huh. see you basically teasing out your argument. You're doing a kind of origin story about the U.S. Yeah, I and, I try to resist US, it, but I find it very hard to resist. Yeah, I mean, I see I see a lot of intellectual history in how you're making your arguments. You retell the American story, which you would call a miracle, mm-hmm. if I'm getting you correct. Yeah, basically. I mean, it's part of the miracle, but yeah, it's yeah. a miracle. Yeah, And even more so, liberalism. Mm-hmm. Is the miracle Cap- liberal capitalism is the miracle? Right. I mean, the, I, we should get we should clear this up. I mean, mm-hmm. the the reason why I choose the word miracle has a bunch of different reasons, and none of them have to do with divine providence, mm-hmm. which has annoyed some of my friends on the right, uh, particularly on the religious right, because they think this shows hostility to God and all these kinds of things. That's not what I'm doing. The reasons why I call it the miracle are is that first of all, no one has a really good explanation that everyone can agree to. But why, for the first time in 250, 300,000 years, the average human being started living a prosperous life? I want to call it a miracle because when something good and wonderful happens to you, we should have gratitude for it. And when something miraculous happens, we should have respect for it rather than hostility towards it. And another reason why, and this gets kind of deep into the weeds and gets at some of the things that have been written about the book, there wasn't just one enlightenment. Right. I mean, I I think Stephen Pinker gets this wrong the way he talks about the Enlightenment. I think his book is very good and he's very smart and I think he's a force for for the good guys. But what he basically does is take everything that he likes in the historical trends of the last 300 years and says that's Enlightenment. And everything he doesn't like says that's not Enlightenment. Well, you know, the German Enlightenment was different than the French Enlightenment, Mm -hmm. was different than the English Enlightenment, was different than the Scottish Enlightenment and was different than the American Enlightenment. There were many Enlightenments. Well, so let's tease this out for a Uh minute, though. You seem to argue almost that England and by extension the United States right. had a special path. So so many so yes. many people used to make these debates about whether or not Germany had a special path to fascism. Right. You seem to almost be saying the United States via England had a special path to liberalism. Yes, I am absolutely saying that. Deirdre McCloskey, who's a big influence on me, would argue that Holland also had a special mm-hmm. path towards liberalism. And there are certain Dutch jingoists who don't like my <laughs> story, but that's fine. I, and as an aside, I do think the Germans had a bit of a special path towards fascism. Just want to make sure we're getting that in there. Right? Yeah, yeah, just gotta get, get the digs in. Um, I think Ernest Gellner, he, you know, a historical philosopher, sociologist, he points out that you know this this weird transformation in humanity, where human beings basically create a new consciousness. Mm-hmm. 
A liberal consciousness? A liberal consciousness, Mm -hmm. called a modern consciousness, really happens once and only once in human history and basically happens in England. And I'm not sure you have to be as tunnel-visioned as all of that, but the relevance is, is that the one that we inherited came from England. Primarily, England and Scotland. The Lockean Revolution. The Lockean Revolution. Which, so for our listeners, we should define. Sure. One of the things I try to do is, is be clear about this, but I keep getting dragged into it for this intellectual history mm. stuff because I like it so much. When I say that the Lockean Revolution creates the miracle, I do not mean that the ideas of John Locke created it. I think too often what we do is we, we find philosophers or intellectuals that sort of represent a change in custom or mores or thinking, and we say they're responsible for it, when in reality they're more reflecting it than creating it. And obviously there's a catalytic process there. Yeah, I mean, it's a mutual. Both the things yeah. are happening at once. There's a feedback yeah. thing going on. You know, I, A friend of mine keeps telling me I'm a, more of a dialectician than I want to admit. But, that's fine. <laughs> but my point is, is that right, so the Lockean Revolution is this idea that our rights come from God, not from government, that we are citizens, not subjects, that the fruits of our labors belong to us primarily, which means that innovation is good. This is the very McCloskey point. For almost all of Western history up until the Lockean Revolution, innovation was viewed skeptically as it was throughout most of the world. Um, you know, the Chinese Arab civilization, which were way ahead of us, way ahead of the West for big chunks of history, they turned their backs on innovation because it threatened the established order. Uh, in Western Europe, innovation was considered a sin, the sin of curitas, of questioning the, the, the powers that be. And the idea that the individual is sovereign, that we are captains of ourselves. Um, these ideas radically transform our understanding of ourselves and of the world around us. And I'm a big believer that all a civilization is, is the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. So, I mean, if I'm getting your argument correct. It's that all these different aspects, and we might extend from some of the things you just mentioned, you know, uh, the specific emphasis on individual rights, right? That's, right. That, that is new within the Lockean revolution, right. to use your terminology. This emphasis even on free speech. To I mean, to some extent, I mean, I, I, don't, I wouldn't say that's primary in Locke, but that, as we said, we're not necessarily talking about Locke, we're using him as a symbol. Right. The end of the divine right of kings, the notion of inherited Mm -hmm. aristocracy, that Mm -hmm. some people are just simply born better than other people Mm -hmm. because of accidents of their birth. Locke Mm -hmm. does great violence to that. That's a big part of it. And so all of those things, as you say in the book, had existed in separate ways in other societies, but they had never existed in a combination together until this, you know, whatever we want to mark it, you know, specifically between the 17th and 18th century, this transition in England and, and the United States. Right. Where these ideas come to fruition, of course, they come to fruition most congealed in the American Revolution. Right. And so in that sense, that's the special path. And that's the miracle, if I'm getting you right. The miracle is basically a statistical thing, right? The okay. miracle is just basically that for 250, 300,000 years, whenever we split off from the Neanderthals, the average human being everywhere in the world lived on, on average, less than $3 a day. The natural environment for humanity everywhere around the world for the average person was a short, nasty, brutish life that was punctuated by an early death um, caused by either violence or some bowel-stewing disease, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why I emphasize that it's a statistical or material thing is that I'm trying to argue basically on progressive terms. Mm -hmm. And if the point of politics and government is to improve the material conditions of people, to improve literacy and health and prosperity and all of these kinds of things, to alleviate poverty, to get rid of bigotry, right? These material manifestations of the human condition, they all start taking off like a rocket for the average human being 
everywhere this this miracle unfolds, everywhere the Lockean Revolution starts to unfold and is still going on to this day. We live in the greatest moment of poverty alleviation in all of human history. And it's not because of the UN. It is because of the, right. basically these ideas about the market, about innovation, about the role of government. And it's not perfect. It's not happening seamlessly everywhere and it creates all sorts of dislocations and problems. But it's something I think we should be grateful to rather than hostile. And if I'm getting your argument correct, you're not making this argument that English culture and by extension American culture, so the Anglo-American tradition, for lack of a better phrase, is somehow superior. You can understand it as a divine thing, if you like, or you right. can understand it as an accident. Either way, same result. But it's still something that is incredibly rare in human history and something that we need to appreciate. But if I'm also understanding your argument correctly, you believe that this lack of appreciation or this lack of gratitude, I think you say specifically, mm-hmm. is part of what's putting democracy democracy in danger. And so let's talk for a second sure. about this widely cited study that you actually talk about in the book. Specifically, it appeared in the Journal for Democracy, where you know surprising amount of young Americans, but even all Americans, but especially young Americans, don't think that living in a democracy is essential. Mm-hmm. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us, first of all, uh, no offense uh, to you or your students, but it tells us a well-established finding in the social science literature that young people often think dumb things. Um, <laughs> that doesn't mean old people don't sometimes think dumb things too, but as a statistical matter, I find that ignorance and bad di- bad ideas are highly correlated with age. But, I mean, I'm giving, I'm, I'm, I'm being a little too glib here. I, I think part of it is, is that you know one of the things that we do in our culture from K through 12 on up and not just in education, but also in in popular culture and popular journalism, is we teach people to run down our own society, to run down our own history. If you take sort of the Howard Zinn view of American history, Mm -hmm. it is solely a story of the people and peoples who were treated terribly, right? And I very much want to teach that history. You have mm-hmm. to teach that history. You're, um, not a, you're not disagreeing with that history being taught. I'm not disagreeing with that history being right. taught. I'm disagreeing with that history being taught to the exclusion of all other stories. Right. You have to teach about slavery because, first of all, it was profoundly evil and the great sort of hypocrisy of the American founding. But one of the reasons why you got to teach about it is to teach about overcoming it. Mm. Every major civilization in human history up until about 300 years ago had slavery in its past or in its Mm. present. Mm -hmm. The remarkable thing about what the West did vis-a-vis slavery isn't that we had it, but that we got rid of it. And I'm not trying to minimize it. I'm not trying to, you know, but, you know, there's, there are arguably more slaves today than there were 300 years ago. We don't think about it or care about it as much because it is not a convenient political cudgel against our opponents here at home. But the way that we talk about our past is that we we really almost exclusively focus on the negative, that all you need to know about the founding fathers was slavery. All you need to know about the, the conquest of America was how poorly the Indians were treated, which they obviously were. I think that teaches us to have a profound sense of ingratitude to where we come from, to the system that we have. I wrote a column about this recently. It was, I, I sort of chastised my fellow conservatives for making a big deal about this moon landing movie, not having the flag on the moon, right? <laughs> but I also chastised liberals for not being mad about it, right? Mm-hmm, because right. the history of American liberalism is very much the history of, of invoking patriotism towards large goals. And I lost track how many times Barack Obama said, if we could put a man on the moon, blah, 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 or this is our Sputnik moment where we all have to rally together. I think liberals have taken it as they, they want all the all the unity of nationalism and patriotism, but none of the rhetoric of it. But is it fair to call the, you know, the current paradigm that is dominant in the, most of the humanities and probably most of the social sciences as well liberal? No. Is it fair to call it? No, that? that's, that's, that's a very fine point. That's a fine point. I would love that it were liberal. 
I mean, classically liberal. Mm-hmm. I mean, just class, I mean, just. But I mean, are they? Do they exist within the liberal tradition? I mean, so just to tease out what you were saying a little bit earlier. Sure. And so, in American historiography, I would define what you were describing as only teaching of the conflict, uh, only teaching the negative things that have happened in U.S. history. The people who have been left out, Howard's in, you right. would be a very good example. I would define this as this battle that happened mostly in the '60s between the quote consensus school sure. of American historiography. And the conflict school, which right. with the conflict school, as you just described, has basically won out. Ideas of the consensus school, which are some of the people we were talking about before the podcast actually began. Right. Richard Hofstetter, Daniel Borson, Clinton Louis Rossiter, Hartz, Clinton Rossiter, all right. these people who had very interesting interpretations that by by no means were flag-waving conservative sure. uh, or even conservative necessarily agree with. That type of work is not only not being taught, that vein of work right. is no longer no longer even has a— an outlet, and I say this in part because my work exists in that vein. So, um, but uh, I mean, so how do we get this message out to people who aren't taking it as seriously, who are more casual observers, putting their kids in higher education institutions? How do we communicate this message for both stories being told? Yeah, I, you know, it's it's very hard because part of the problem is is that when it comes from conservatives, it is automatically considered illegitimate, suspect, jingoism, chauvinism, whatever. And, you know, I mean, when it comes from... Uh, sort of progressive liberal types who are still part of the, I mean, I don't want to cause your career any problems, so <laughs> leave you out of it, right? But part of the reason why the conflict school won was that when push comes to shove, the American liberal, and when I say liberal, I just, I'm not, I'm talking about, these are Democrats, right? These are Arthur Schlesinger, Clinton mm-hmm. Rossiter. They all caved. Now, Clinton Rossiter at Cornell insisted that he was going to stand by the free speech rights and the academic freedom of conservatives. And when push came to shove, he capitulated to the guys wielding guns guns on campus. Mm-hmm. And it, so it's, to me, it's kind of fascinating. If you go back and you look at the 1960s campus battles among intellectuals, the new left, right, which mm-hmm. is sort of the conflict school, mm-hmm. right? Uh, well, it definitely grows out of the new left. Right. They kind of left conservatives alone and they took mm-hmm. dead aim at, at New Deal liberals. At New Deal liberals, yeah. right? Yeah. And which is why I find so much of the intra-liberal, intra-progressive conversation today about wanting to own the history of the New Deal while rejecting sort of all of the intellectual firmament that made that possible. Like Mark Lilla's arguments and things yeah. like this. Yeah, I'm, I, I loathe identity politics and I think mm-hmm. it leads someplace terrible, which is different than saying – than what you would call in the past ethnic politics, you know, mm-hmm. melting pot politics, mm-hmm. right? And one of the things that truly – get back to the topic of the book. One of the things that really, I mean, legitimately breaks my heart is how many people on the right have basically surrendered to the logic of identity politics, mm-hmm. right? You know, Friedrich Hayek talks about how conservatives in America are one of the only people in the world who can call themselves conservatives – and still be defenders of liberty because we're trying to conserve a radical liberal mm. revolution, right? Mm-hmm. We're, you know, this is a point Samuel Huntington makes in conservatism as an ideology is that conservatism is always contextual, mm-hmm. right? So a conservative in Portugal or Russia is trying to conserve very different mm-hmm. institutions and ideas than a conservative in America. And there were bad conservatives and good conservatives in America. But one of the things that the conservatives I've always aligned myself with, which is sort of the mainstream conservative movement, is this idea that we are conserving the ideas enshrined in the American founding, right, mm-hmm. the, the, which unfold over time, right? And what we've seen, not just with the, the pecker woods of the alt-right, but, you know, in more intellectual places, is people argue, as Michael Anton did when he was writing anonymously in the Claremont Review of Books, that the old colorblind notion of America, the judge people by the contents of their character, not the color of their skin, that's gone. And That it's antiquated. It, 
he said it was just gone. And mm-hmm. so we need to embrace our own tribalism, our own identity politics. Mm-hmm. And I find that repugnant. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons the, the reason my podcast is called The Remnant is because I see myself as, I mean, it's a little ironic sort of tongue-in-cheek, but I see myself as aligned with this tradition of conservatism that has been overtaken by mm-hmm. right-wing populism and nationalism that has its own sort of white identity politics to it that I find abhorrent. A different form of identitarianism is a word people keep using. Yeah. I mean, basically, one of the th- one of the reasons why conservatism is in the absolutely crappy condition that it is, and or at least in many parts of it, is and – I, and I – Take some blame for this. Uh, my first book introduced Saul Alinsky to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I wasn't praising Saul Alinsky. The mm-hmm. guy literally dedicates Rules for Radicals to the devil, you know, <laughs> and to Lucifer, really? the first rebel. Oh, wow. And, um, and this weird transformation overtook a lot of people on the right where they sort of at first joined me in demonizing the guy and then over time got – essentially Alinsky envy. And they said, you know, in this, what sense? well, the, I'm using their terms, right? Uh, the Frankfurt School Marxists, right? The cultural Marxists, they took over the country. They took over the Democratic Party. They took over the mainstream media. And um, the only way we're going to take any of that back is if we adopt their tactics, that we fight fire with fire. And that attitude, I mean, it didn't take over National Review. It didn't take over the Weekly Standard. It didn't take over normal institutions of the Republican Party. But it took over a lot of the sort of post-Andrew Breitbart, passionately intense internet conservatism Mm -hmm. and or right-wing, you know, internet stuff. And Steve Bannon represents this thinking to a T. Dinesh D'Souza embraces big chunks of it these days. And I think it's poisonous because Mm -hmm. you can't spend your life demonizing what the other side does and then say our only source, our only way to victory is to do the exact same thing, but for our ends. Because once you make it all about means, the means become well, so, the but ends. Well, so then, and if I'm getting you correct, then to abandon liberal principles in the name of liberalism is, is, is perhaps what both sides are doing to a certain that's, extent. I think that's exactly right. And again, both sides believe in the caricatures of their enemies rather than the reality of them. And the caricatures of themselves too, right? That's right. So I think the sort of the, the new left, whatever, the, the identity politics left, the conflict school, if we want to use the term. The conflict school, school rejects liberalism, rejects the idea that comes out of the miracle that in the extended order, you need neutral, fair rules for everybody, right? That there is no such thing as superiority or inferiority based upon an abstract category. They say things like this about ideas, though, but do they really mean it? Who's the they? The conflict school? The or? conflict school, okay. the new left, um, for lack of— The, the, the illiberal left. We, we've described, yes, described as transcendent across across most of the humanities and the social right. sciences. And so what do you what do you see as their role, going back to one of my earlier questions, as the rise of a lack of appreciation or a lack of concern for democracy, for the idea that democracy is an essential aspect of how we ought to organize ourselves? And if we might say by extension, liberalism. One of the positive responses from, to, I should say, Donald Trump is a sudden concern with the fragility of democracy. I think some of it is overblown, but some of it isn't. And as someone who basically thinks that the miracle happened because of rhetoric, I mean, again, Deirdre McCloskey, I think, got this right, that rhetoric, um, words and institutions are the only things that separate us from the savages we were for most of our evolutionary history. Every now and then, it's kind of good to to activate the antibodies. And so you have lots of people, the people who are being read among the sort of college campus intellectuals are the people who are writing about the the, the fragility of democracy, right? And uh, this antibody response, again, which I think can get overblown, I think is largely 
at the end of the day, a very healthy one. And, uh, you know, my book is largely part of that that process, mm-hmm. too. Stephen Pinker, Jonathan Haidt, uh, Tim Snyder at Yale. Um, there are lots of people who are – Yasha Monk who are saying – hey, wait a second, this is actually much more fragile, much more in need of upkeep than we ever thought. I honestly believe that the the people who are writing about whiteness studies and white supremacy and all of that kind of stuff, their following is much smaller than they think it is. But Does, they managed to mobilize so well. There is. And there's a Gramscian march through the institutions they, that's very ma- powerful. And they managed to get people to listen to them. I agree. In uh, part because people, again, I don't want to categorize you because, right. I, again, I don't want you, you know, <laughs> living in a refrigerator box. But part of the problem is that historically the good vital center liberals uh-huh. care way too much about their opinions mm-hmm. and they tend to fold. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there's a thing about the – I mean to use sweeping generalizations, there's a thing about the white left that is almost incapable of challenging the sort of black left or the feminist left and actually having – Real arguments. But going along with that, I mean, doesn't quite a bit of that have to do with tribalism? Yes. In and of itself. And so if you see yourself as on the left, then you say, okay, this this group, even if I see them as extreme, is part of my tribe. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to go against the tribe. Yes. And similar things happen, obviously, on the right as well. They do. I mean, and, this, <laughs> and, you're, me and, you're, and you're seeing this, obviously, with Trump. Many yeah. people who you would be shocked, probably would have been shocked two years ago to be eventually siding with Trump, I would imagine. There's many yeah, people who I, have I've, shocked you that, that, that I, are. I've lost lots of fans right, and friends right. in the last two years. So how is it that we move beyond this kind of tribalism, especially as educators? It's something I'm really interested in. How do we encourage people not to join whatever it is their specific easy tribe is and define their way of thinking within those categories? So we are going to end it there today. To hear Goldberg's answer to this question, check back tomorrow for part two. Keeping It Civil is produced by Duncan Mensch and Ty Fishkin. Music composed by Dario Miranda. Special thanks to Nakai Salcido. This production was made possible by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. Special thanks to Paul Carice for making this possible. If you'd like to learn more about our courses, programs, or speaker series, please visit scetl.asu.edu to learn more. Thanks for listening.